Good afternoon, folks. Hi, everyone. I want to just take 10 seconds to welcome everybody here in the room, but particularly I want to welcome some people that are online, uh, and I'll welcome them uh, by camera. My name is Tim Manchild. I'm Colgate's Director of Alumni Affairs, and I appreciate you giving me 10 seconds to introduce and welcome folks that are online. We do have parents and alumni all around the country, and in some cases around the world, that um, watch our class live and participate and ask some questions on the computer. If you, if you are happen to be one of those parents and alumni that are doing so, please write your questions in. Amanda's here in the room, and if we get the opportunity and the chance, we will uh, bring a question here to the classroom. But this time is yours, the students, and um, we're grateful that we can peek in and be a part of this exciting class. So thanks, everyone, for having us uh, a part of today's class. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Jennifer Bryce, who will introduce our, our guest author, Mark Ravenhill. Jennifer Bryce. Very generous gift from Jim Horwitz and Sandy Allison in the class of 1979 made <coughs> excuse me, Mark Ravenhill's visit to Colgate possible. Jean and I would like to thank them <coughs> very, very much. And we'd also like to thank our colleague, Adrian Georgia, who suggested Mr. Ravenhill to us and who helped with the logistics of bringing a man whose schedule is very, very jam-packed. We just had an opening in Berlin. Um, as Mr. Ravenhill's to campus, so thank you very much. Mark Ravenhill is a British director and playwright who exploded onto the international scene in 1996 with a play whose title can't be spoken in polite company, or at least not in front of my mother, and or spelled out in the pages of the London Times or the New York Times. In the decade and a half since Shopping and Fucking was produced, <laughs> Mr. Ravenhill has written many critically acclaimed plays, some explicit Polaroids, Handbag, Product, Mother Claps, Molly House, The Cut, Citizenship, Totally Over You, these last two written for young people. His work brings to mind that of Bertolt Brecht, Ibsen, even George Bernard Shaw. Like Shaw, writes Dominic Dromgoul, Ravenhill's work displays verbal wit, a resistance to the morality of the preceding generation and the keen sense of sociology. The Living Writers students read Shoot, Get Treasure, Repeat, an epic cycle of short plays first presented in 2007 at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, since translated and performed the world over. These 17 linked plays respond, Mr. Ravenhill told our students just a little while ago, in metaphoric, imaginative ways to the war on terror as it has played out in Iraq and Afghanistan. Formally, the plays stake out territory between realism and symbolism. Tonally, they veer between domestic discomfort, discontent, and apocalyptic anger. Reading them is not an entirely comfortable experience. I imagine seeing them would not be either. Nothing escapes Mr. Ravenhill's satiric eye, especially not complacency, self-congratulation, and the often accompanying impulse to look away from what is too painful to confront, either out in the war-torn world or within the warring self. Why do you bomb us? Ask the doomed women of Troy, speaking to their audience. Look at me. Look at me. Don't be strange, look at me. Mr. Ravenhill makes us look. Some of what we see is brutish and violent human nature at its very worst. In nooks and crannies, though, are acts of compassion and generosity, even wisdom. They're freaks and torturers and suicide bombers and headless soldiers, also broken-winged angels, people trying to find love or at least a good night's sleep and a mother who asks only that the soldiers delivering news of her son's death not say she took it well. Taken together, the 17 plays in this epic cycle with the video game title comprise a large-hearted, humane, and outward-looking portrait of a culture in real danger of looking away from what may, must be seen in order to be born. Thank you, and welcome to Mark Ravenhill. Thank you. 
Um, so what I'll do is I'll give you a little bit of background to that monologue, then I'll kind of perform, and then we can do questions and answers. So um, I was working uh, about a couple of years ago now with some students in a drama school in London, which is called London, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. And Lambda have a really, really great thing, which is they have a project in the second year, because it's a three-year training. It's conservatoire training for actors. But they have 10 weeks in the second year where the actors can develop a new piece of work, often with a writer, maybe with a director or a choreographer. Or, but the only rule is that it's not uh, a project where a play is picked up and rehearsed. Um, because it's conservatoire training, the training is, is very good. But, but really mostly based on the theatre that already exists. So the students are trained to perform classical work um, and, and some new plays. So the majority of their training, they will be turning up to a rehearsal room, picking up a play and rehearsing the play. There are the 10 weeks in the second year where that's off limits and they meet every day and they develop a new piece of work. Um, because Peter, the principal, said that now, as they go out into the outside world as actors, they will be asked to work in different ways. If you know the British filmmaker Mike Lee, he creates a film through a lot of improvisation with his actors. They don't have a script when they begin. Or a British theatre company like Theatre de Complicité will develop something through a series of physical exercises and research. Or a theatre company like Max Stafford Clark's Joint Stock, Out of Joint as it's now called, will often start with the research process where the actors and the playwrights come together with a playwright. They've worked with playwrights like Carol Churchill. They might start with a blank page and do lots of research and improvisation, devising together before a play is written. So uh, Peter, who's the principal of the school, felt that it was very necessary that the students had some time in their training <coughs> where they worked in some way that was devising, researching based. And I've been lucky enough to uh, do that work with them three times. The first time uh, a piece came out of that that was called <coughs> Mother Claps Molly House. Uh, I'd read this really fascinating research. There was a very developed gay subculture in early 18th century London in the 1720s. There was a whole subculture that was called the Molly culture. Um, that's there isn't very much documentation. The documentation that exists is about 30 pages, so it doesn't take too long <laughs> to research it. Um, there were some court cases when some of these molly houses were raided. So I took that into the drama students a, a decade ago, and we spent 10 weeks and researched the period and the characters and the history of sexuality and all sorts of things. And, and a play came out of that that was eventually directed by uh, Nicholas Heitner at the, at the National Theatre. So it kind of moved from a student project right into the, um, the mainstream, I suppose, the heart of British establishment theatre. So I had um, this group of students from Lambda a couple of years ago to work with. And really what I like to do, given that we've got 10 weeks, which is a lovely long time, is not to have too many preconceptions at all, take some starting points and see where the work leads us. And then in the last few weeks, I pull it together into some kind of presentation where I might do a draft, a very rough draft of a play, and we'll do a presentation. <coughs> you don't even have to do the presentation, but I think nobody wants to spend 10 weeks and then show nothing to nobody, which you're allowed to do, but I think it's nice at the end, however rough, <coughs> to do a little performance. Um, and uh, one of the things that we started to talk about one day, and it came from the students really, was the ethics of um, animal experiments and animal testing and, and the way that we relate to animals. And I, and I realised really it was something that I've never really thought about. I guess like most things in our life, it's one of those things that I thought, that's probably really important, but I just don't have time right now to think about it, so I'm just going to eat this meat and wear this leather jacket and, and not ask myself all those difficult questions. But one of the students in particular was very, very insistent that, that, that we sit and we talk about and, and, and we think about animals and how we treated animals and what the rights of animals were. And uh, this student uh, brought in a book by um, a philosopher, really, who writes about ethics called Peter Singer. And uh, it's a very pro-animal book, I guess you could say. 
um, really questioning, are animals any different from human beings? And yet, why do we feel that we can treat animals very differently in the way that we treat human beings? And one of the things that Singer said in, in, his, in his book, which I think was called Practical Ethics, if I remember correctly, one of the things that Singer said was, which was hugely provocative and very upsetting, and we talked about it for a long time in the, in the class, one of the things that Singer said was that a, a severely disabled child would feel a lot less if it were experimented upon than an adult, than an animal would feel. And yet, as human beings, we, we would feel it would be profoundly wrong to conduct an experiment on the disabled child, whereas most of us <coughs> maybe don't feel comfortable about it, well, but, but we tend to get on with our lives and say, OK, so the medication I take and the cosmetics that I use were tested on animals. I kind of know that, but I'll kind of forget it. Um, and Singer was really challenging that and saying, how could we function as human beings, allowing that <coughs> to happen and to build our whole cosmetics industry and our pharmaceutical industry and our food industry on this cruelty to animals as he saw it. One of the other things that, that had come out coincidentally uh, with the students was um, talking about the brain and about memory um, and the unreliability of memory and one of the exercises that, that we did just as a very simple exercise is I, they, they, they were all in the same course, they're all there, they're just studying acting, they don't have major courses, minor courses, they're just there three years acting, right? Every class is an acting class. Um, so they'd all started 18 months before. So I said, tell me what happened on your first day that you arrived at the college. So I got about eight of the students to sit in, in a chair and tell the rest of the room what happened on their first day at college. Nobody could agree on anything. And it had only happened 18 months before. So they'd say, well, we all were asked to turn up at 9. No, we all turned up at 8.30. No, no. The first room we had to go into was upstairs and we had to sign a sheet of paper. That wasn't until the next day. The first thing they did was they got us all into this hall and they introduced us. No, they didn't. That was in the afternoon. And, then, and we all went to have a drink together in the pub at lunchtime. None of us went to the pub. That day you got it wrong. And <laughs> it, was, it was incredible how... Um, 18 months later, everybody thought they, and was quite passionate that their view of that day was absolutely right. And, and you've got this great kind of dramatic event, actually. These eight people lined up in chairs trying to tell you. I said, start at the beginning of the day and just talk us through it as a narrative. And it just broke down into these passionate arguments <laughs> about who was there and who wasn't there and what was there. And they couldn't agree on anything. Um, and I thought that was very fascinating. And... Um, but I think there's a danger in that because uh, it's become quite fashionable to say that uh, memory is unreliable, truth is, truth is relative, everything is relative. Uh, it's maybe part of what they call the postmodern condition that, that we say there are no absolute values. And in some ways, a little exercise like, like that proves maybe that it's, that it's true, that everything's very subjective. But I think the possibility for um, acts of cruelty and evil to, to happen and for people to evade the fact that they happen and to evade their responsibility for those actions also become very possible within that postmodern condition. If nothing quite happened, if everything was relative, if nothing's quite right or wrong, who's ever going to take any responsibility for any, any moral decision? So I guess the link is the ethics, really, this... Peter Singer book of practical ethics. So with all these things buzzing around in my head that had come from the students who are about the same age as you, the discussion about the animal cruelty, the unreliability of memory, and all these things, um, I went away and wrote a little piece. Um, and, we, and we showed it as part of our final presentation. I then kind of set it aside, and then somebody was asking me for something to um, be performed last year as a kind of, they asked for a spooky story, a scary story for Halloween. And I said, I don't have anything and I'm too busy. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but then actually I went away and I thought, actually that piece that I wrote for the students in some way is a spooky, scary story. So I performed it to an audience who'd come to a Halloween event and were, 
were there to be given a spook, a scare. And, and they completely accepted this piece which I'm going to perform, which is in some ways a very fragmented, difficult, odd, strange piece. And I think if I'd performed it in a high art theatre, people would have wrestled with it and thought about it. But actually this audience, who, the deal was, spook me out. They loved it. They said, wow, that was really creepy. <laughs> that was a great Halloween story. So then I thought that's quite interesting. If you actually have a deal with an audience and tell them you're going to give them a genre, they just relax. You, you know, if you say this is going to be scary, they, they'll sit through anything. Um, <laughs> but I, so, so, so I learned the piece for that. But actually, I performed it a bit subsequently as well. There was a, uh, somebody came to see that. There's a big... Um, there's, a, there's a lot of them now. There's... There's a big fest summer festival circuit in, in the UK, as, as there is in um, the States, I know. But, um, and what's become quite popular now is, uh, and you guys can probably tell me it's the same here, is a long festivals have always had a lot of bands playing in the summer. Everybody comes together, spends five days in a huge few fields, and big bands come together and play. But also it's become more and more popular now to invite other things to happen, poetry and film screenings and book launches and to happen during a festival. So still the main big headlining bands are there. But now they have theatre tents as well. So somebody from a festival called Latitude saw me perform this piece at the Halloween thing and said, come and perform it at Latitude, which is a rock festival. So I performed this in the summer, just gone at a rock festival, while I think Florence and the Machine were playing in a big, <laughs> big field over there. And there was a bit of sound coming through from Florence and the Machine. I had a theatre tent which seated 700 people. Um, and they were very geared up to theatre. So when I turned up, um, I had, instead of your normal theatre stage manager, I had a kind of roadie. Uh, and the roadie took me into this dressing room and opened this fridge which had bottles of vodka, beer, wine, blah, 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 and said, take whatever you want before you go on stage. And um, I said, I'm actually not going to drink anything before I go on stage. And this rock and roll roadie just like, whatever. You're nuts. <laughs> You're going to go on in front of that crowd without drinking the bottle of vodka. You're crazy. <laughs> but anyway, they left me to it. So um, I, I didn't touch the fridge. I gave away the bottles at the end of the show to friends. But um, <laughs> so I performed it without alcohol. But also you didn't, you didn't get any time on the stage. So... You're waiting, and they just strap this kind of, like, you, know, you call them like Madonna mics, you know, those kind of mics like that. So they just strap you in this Madonna mic, and then you're pushed on, and there was 700 people in a tent, and I had to do it there. Um, so that was another interesting test of the piece. And then um, my play, as you mentioned, Shoot, Get Treasure, Repeat, opened at the Berlin Ensemble um, September 25th, so just over a month ago. And a week or so later, they were having... Uh, kind of event launchy discussion thing and they said do you have something that you can read or and uh, so by now I, I knew that I <laughs> I've got my party piece so I said yeah so actually I performed this um, last ooh, it must have been about 10 days ago um, in, in, the in the rehearsal room at the Berlin Ensemble uh, which was amazing for me it was actually built in the early 60s so Brecht died 56. So Brecht never rehearsed there, but Helena Weigel, who took over the um, Berlin Ensemble and, and created the role of uh, Mother Courage, uh, did rehearse in there a lot during the 60s <coughs> and 70s. So that was very strange to think, OK, this piece that I started came out of a discussion with my students. I'm now performing in this rehearsal room where this probably the most influential actress and director, theatre director, she didn't direct, but theatre manager, of the 20th century rehearse so much of her work. Anyway, that's a bit, a bit of a uh, long build-up. It's about um, 20 minutes or so. So I'll probably step away from the podium to do this. Um, this was, I suppose, a long time ago. And I remember I lived in a modest house with my partner, and I think maybe your face, you were one of our neighbours. And we were very happy in that big old house, very. Because we had children, one of each, a perfect pair, a very special, unique, 
wonderful child. And it was us. One time it was. I remember in that big old manor house, it was. We ran the tests on the children. Because, you see, we sort of knew that one day one of the children would grow up to have an incurable disease, an as-yet incurable disease. So what we decided, my partner decided and I followed, we decided together, what we decided to do was to experiment on the children so that we'd find a cure when the time came. We'd find a cure for the child's later ailment. And we were, if I remember, very thorough about this, very organised, mostly organised, an organised chaos. And we would infect the children with little drops of viruses, or we would inject them with little cells of cancer, and we, you know, through the bars of the cage. Oh, the cage was in a film. I saw the cage in a film, a documentary or a horror. Or the cage was in the fairy story my grandmother told me that time on the train journey to... So there wasn't, maybe there wasn't, no cage. Because the child had a lovely room, the best room in that cramped little house. Stars that glowed on the ceiling, wallpaper of princesses, rug of a map of an imaginary world. But because my partner had an incurable disease, it wasn't curable at the time, that's when my partner decided to experiment on the children. My partner told me on a rainy, hot winter night afternoon as we made breakfast lying on the sun deck, and he was over there, and my partner said to me, I have an incurable disease, and what we must do is experiment on the children so that we can find a cure. And I remember, I understood immediately. I was totally opposed. I was dumbstruck. I didn't know what to do. This didn't happen to me. This happened to you. This happened to a person I saw in a documentary once. So I remember, I went along with it. I strapped the child to the bed. I was very kind, I was very soothing. I loved my child, but I loved my partner. We had to find a cure. What you do to get through something like that when you know it's for the greater good, what you do is you numb your feelings, you cut out your heart, you cut it. I don't remember anything about the tests beginning. Just suddenly you're there and your partner has strapped the child to the bed and is injecting them with tiny drops of viruses and cancers. I don't remember anything at all. I remember the children slept through the worst of it. I was sleeping all the time. I remember waking up and I said to my partner, the most awful thing is happening next door. Next door they are experimenting on their children so they can find a cure. And my partner said, that sort of thing goes on. Of course I know it goes on, but a long way, a long time ago. But I was so sure. And I took, it was the new video camera, and I climbed over the fence and into our neighbor's garden. This was after two, three, six months, ten years of this. After a while, imagine this was you, imagine you're me. After a while, you just have to know if this is a real thing. You just have to have something on record. So, the Christmas lights were still up, and in the baking heat, I'm making my way up the stairs in that big old house. It was the shed door, the child's voice behind the, Father, Father, the needle is sharp. Mother, Mother, cut out your heart, which I remember in verse, which can't be, but <laughs> there in my head, verse. <laughs> father, Father, the needle is sharp. Mother, mother, cut out your... And I pushed, pulled, the door swung open, and through the eye of the camera, I saw my partner neighbour injecting the child strapped to the bed and sleeping. And I remember, I called out, 
Dear God, what is this? Has it come to this? Are we animals, we who are God's creation, we who are close to the angels, we who are reason and imagination, is this what we're doing with all that God has given us? These tests, these experiments, I wish I'd said that when I go back in my head. When I tell the story to you or to myself, that's what I wish I... We were God's creation, those words. But I just remember screaming, Shit! 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 Over and over. And because I didn't... That's right, the order was muddled. It didn't happen. We lived in a modest manor house long ago, and I suppose I must have had my suspicions, because why else would I be standing with the video camera in my time? But I didn't know anything about the experiments or the reasons for the experiments. That's right, I didn't know anything about the experiments, and that's why I reacted so shit. It was my partner who first told me. And I remember I was on the lounger and the vodka was in my hand and the tea was cold and my partner said, next door they have an as yet incurable disease and what we must do is experiment on our children so we can find a cure. Granted, your child may suffer a little, but it will find a cure for the disease next door. So that's when I agreed to the experiments. That's how my partner made me agree to the experiments. There was once a person who agreed to experiments on children if it would find a cure. And I remember my neighbour was angry. Was it you? It was you. You were sarcastic, mocking, teasing, furious, understanding. Your partner makes his money in shares in a company that experiments on children. And I told you to prevent an incurable disease. And you backed off away then. This child. Look at this child. This child is so damaged. This child has no memory. There is no past or future for this child. This child has no moral sense. This child cannot tell you this is right or this is wrong. This child has no empathy. This child cannot feel what others feel. Can we really say that it is wrong to experiment on this child? I would not call this child an animal because that would be, quite frankly, degrading to the animal. I'm in the room. The room is squalid and there's pizza boxes and there's beer cans. And I'm looking at my twin brother and he's sat on the bed and his skin is red and sore. It's all over his hands and it's starting to cover his face. And I look at him and I think he hates me, my smooth skin and my clothes. And um, that's when my twin says, do you remember? Do you remember what he did to us? Possibly. How he came into our room at night and he put us in our pyjamas and he took us down the stairs. Do you remember that? Maybe. And how he put us in the cupboard under the stairs and it was dark under the stairs and you could hear the other children in there crying too. Do you remember that? A little bit. And how a train pulled in under the stairs and we got into the train and it took us up into the mountains and he chose us because we were twins. Do you remember that? I'm not sure. And we never saw the other children again. They were washed away. But he took us into his special room and he did the experiments on us.
Do you remember that? I'm not sure. And one day he cried. He cried so much and he said, humanity has ended. Soon the last human being will be gone, but that's okay because I'm going to make a new human race from your cells. If only I can get the experiment right, do you see? And then he stopped crying and there was a big smile over his face. Do you remember? You must. Big smile over his face. Remember that. And I say, no. None of that happened. You need help. You need to get sorted. Humanity didn't die. Open the window. Look outside. There's a whole human race outside. And each of them is individual and unique. And why did you make that up? And that's when my twin says to me, I'm the one who tells the truth. You're the one who makes things up. I'm the one who tells the truth. You're the one who makes things up. And I remember the children grew too big for that room for the shed. The children grew absolutely big and enormous. And I said to my partner, the experiments on the children have ended. It was my partner who first said to me, the experiments on the children have ended. We saw it, I'm pretty sure, on the TV news first. The experiments on the children have ended. Somebody somewhere else had found a cure by experimenting on the... I forget, don't remember. I remember rushing up the stairs in that big old manor house, only of course they weren't there at the time. I remember rushing into my partner's office in the city and I said, they found a cure, antidote, and the children's neighbours lives are saved, my darling, and you're going to live, and here's the first pill. And I remember thinking that you were going to live forever. The other day, it was a lovely day, and um, we went up to the shopping centre because we were celebrating another victory. And um, we got the bus home and everybody was so happy on the bus because they were celebrating the victory and they were smiling and they were congratulating each other. And this big black lady just pulled me into her and said, another victory, praise be, praise be. And we got home and I went to make us a drink to have on the balcony. And that's when my partner said to me, I saw them again. And I wanted to hit my partner and I wanted to tell my partner to shut it, but I'm better educated than that. So I just said, yes. And that's when my partner said, the two little boys, it's just the noise at first because I could hear them calling, Father, Father, the needle is sharp. But then I saw them, and they were standing at the end of the bed, and they were joined here and here, two but one, and they had injection marks all over here, and they had little cuts all over here, and their eyes and their teeth had been pulled and Is this who we are? Is this how they made us with these tests, with these experiments? What if there are no more humans? What if the last human's gone? What if we were all just made by that man in his shed, experimenting on those boys with the... And I say... Look, the sun is setting, and that's very beautiful. 
and this drink is lovely, so let's just, yes? I won't be with this partner, nothing lasts forever, but as long as we don't talk about the experiments, we'll have a few years, and that's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Turn to the podium. <laughs> um, questions? Yes. Uh, I noticed in this play and in a lot of your plays, the characters go through a lot of uh, emotional changes and like go from sometimes get like very angry or upset and then immediately go back to like being normal. Um, and that happens a couple times. Is that something you try to do? Uh, is that something you're like interested in putting in your plays? Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's largely a conscious thing. Um, I think that um, I guess I, that, that's my sense of how people are that we are um, quite volatile, that, that we can move very easily from um, th through emotional states, um, and that um, but that quite a lot of um, directing and actor training tends to um, flatten out those different emotional states and so we decide that a whole block of a scene is the sad bit or the funny bit or the, or the whatever and that actually it's more exciting to watch actors hit as many different tones and colours and notes within, within a few lines as, as I think people actually do. So um, yeah, I, I think that um, trying to find with actors the specifics that can happen within just a few lines is, is, is an exciting thing to do. And often you have to break that right down into rehearsal to, to, so that it doesn't become a kind of wash. But then when you put the bits back together and you, and, and you play it to an audience, actually that kind of volati volatility, hopefully with a kind of specificity of different emotional states and different thoughts coming boom, 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 is, is exciting to watch as theatre, but is also hopefully true to the way that human beings are, I hope. Anybody got leftover questions from the other class? Yes. I think because um, it, it's a word that quite annoys me, <laughs> um, that it's become um, it's become very popular in the UK, um, and it's one of those strange things where there's a very liberal inc inclination to make no distinction between husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, sexuality, or anything. So it, it has a kind of liberal intention, but like quite a lot of liberal intentions, it actually has. It it also has a kind of repressive aspect to it as well. So now it's actually almost offensive if you're gay to say my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Oh, that's a bit rude. You're supposed to just call them your partner. And, you know, and I rather like that old, um, you know, I rather like some of those old 60s things of my lover. It's <laughs> how, gr how great to call somebody my lover. Or sometimes, you know, people used to say things like in the 80s, like my fuck buddy. <laughs> and there were all these different words. And I think, that I think there's lots of different words that are quite exciting. And... I think something of the PC-ness of everybody just being a partner has, um, has flattened some of that out. And also, it always just feels a little bit business-like. You can set up a business with a partner. <laughs> and I, I want it to be slightly different if I go to bed with somebody than if I set up a business with them. I think, they, I think there should be different words. <laughs> so I kind of want that to be in there because I still don't, you know, when people are my partner, my partner, I'm also like, mm, I don't know whether... It's hard to find the right word, but I'm not sure whether, you know, that word just slightly bugs me, although I use it every day in real life, so. <laughs> so in um, Spirit of the Thunder and Reboot, the men in the play, most of them, are very dominant, forceful <coughs> characters, and the women are more submissive, passive, and 
Hmm. Um, okay, well, I'm not... I, I'm just trying to think about all the women and all the men in the play. I'm not sure whether, hopefully, it, they, they don't break down quite as simply as that. I mean, what I found was that while I was writing the play was that, um, the plays, really, was that they had, lots of the characters turned out to be women. Um, and I, f I do find when you start a play that quite often it feels as though, some plays feel as though they've definitely got quite a male centre, and some feel as though they've got more of a female centre, and, and somehow the balance, and somehow writing these plays, it felt like women's voices um, and women's presences and women's bodies were going to be very present in the plays. I think that um, I, none of the uh, soldiers that we see are women, which maybe is, um, is is maybe where the where the gender divide in the plays is more simplistic, because yeah, but although actually in real life, you know, one of the one of the images that obviously burnt their burnt their way into everybody's minds was those kind of Lindy King images of just that that you know, and I suppose one of the things that people were shocked by was that a woman was so cruel in that in that in that context. So, and and I don't have an, a female character behaving in in quite a way that we would normally think of as a, such a male way as Lindy King was, uh, I've got her name right, Lindy King, yeah? As, so, 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 I, so, so maybe there is a more classic kind of gender divide there between the soldiers of male and aggressive on the whole. Um, but I do, ho hopefully there's a range of female experiences in the play. Certainly, you know, the majority of the characters are, are female and I think they, they show a different hopefully a variety of responses to the war and a lot of the scenes are driven by the by the female characters i mean i think when you're writing a play you it, it's very hard to write too many passive characters because be, be, because a play <coughs> a play only exists through what people say and do so it, by by necessity you're looking for for active characters characters who are very internalized very reflective are quite hard to dramatize, so I th so I think in I think in different ways, most of those female characters are are passive, uh, are, are, are active, but um, but yeah, interestingly, now I look at it, I didn't make any of them the kind of real aggressors in that situation, and maybe I could have done. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because um, <coughs> I I find that I don't use um, profanity uh, very much at all in 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 my daily life, and I'm I'm shocked by I'm sure not on the campus of such an august university. I'm sure profanity is rarely <laughs> uttered. <laughs> But um, if you sit on a bus or a subway train or something, I'm I'm often quite upset by it. I'm thinking, come on, there are kids and old people here, and you're rah, 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 rah. you know. So I, I think one of one of the reasons why there's quite a lot of profanity in quite a lot of my plays is I'm I'm quite <laughs> surprised by how much people use quite aggressive language in in their daily life. Um, so the fact that I hear it on, on buses and subway trains and, and that it still makes me feel a little bit like, ooh, um, means that I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I, why I use it in plays, because I think language is one of the ways in which people can be aggressive and cruel to each other. And I think a lot of what we do to each other, not by no means all, but you know, a lot of what we do to each other is aggressive and cruel. And one of, one of those things is, is, is through language. Um, so, you know, I certainly wouldn't hold with the view that theatre should be better than real life, that in some way we should go to the theatre to see people behaving better than they do in real life, um, which in some ways is, is, is sometimes maybe what you find with the Broadway audience, that, 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 that they're looking for, like, nicer, politer, better looking people than you might find in, in, in real life. But similarly, actually, 
that there's been a lot of changes in in um, in in Russia very very quickly. But the last time I was in in Moscow, which was only a couple of years ago, there was now very strong argument for saying the stage is the place where people with noble feelings and noble thoughts and noble sentiments uh, are happening. The, I, I got a sense with with visiting Moscow every couple of years for the last decade that the Russians went through a period of, it, of kind of getting a bit fascinated by plays like mine and now there's in the last certainly the last group that I spoke to about this size there was a really strong feeling and, and from younger people as well no actually we want the stage to be a place where people behave better than they than, than they might do in their everyday lives and they think more noble thoughts and um, and, and I can see there is you know there is an argument for that but um, it's not a type of theatre that I'm drawn to writing or, or making. I'm, I'm trying to reflect what strikes me about what I see in life and, and I think one of the things that does strike me often is how cruel we are. But I think that probably comes, uh, those are the things that, that you know, come out and hit you in the face as you're sitting on a subway train or watching the news or, or something. I don't think I'm my, my feeling is that all of us operate on that level of cruelty all the time, but, but, but we shouldn't pretend that doesn't exist. I mean, I suppose, a, you know, a little bit like the, the character that I've just played, that a lot of us operate on a level of saying, let's just have the drink and watch the sun setting and pretend the other stuff doesn't happen. And I do think that one of the functions of theatre is to say, no, the other stuff is happening, so let's get it out there and look at it. Yes. No, we did that. We 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 performed that with three, three performers actually, three students. So they were yeah, sli slightly replica replicating our exercise where they were all having different memories of their first day at college. So that that's another one of the texts. There's a few of them in the shoot, get, treasure, repeat where you you could play that with twenty people all all trying to define what happened around these events connected with this experiment. Um, but it also handily works as a monologue as well. But yeah, the students, I think it was three of them. Were they sort of three distinct characters, or did they switch around like you did just now? Because I thought that was sort of worked well to illustrate the way that memories can change bit to I think they were three distinct people, but even within those distinct people, they had conflicted. They would correct themselves and change their opinions and yeah so uh, they weren't three completely stabilized <laughs> people who had a concrete memory they they were three people who kept on shifting and changing as well yes I mean all of those things, but I, that's you know that's why. I've, but that's that's why I've chosen to write for the theatre. Um, is that I enjoy that process of of collaboration, and uh, I think when I first started to write, um, you in the first place are are just writing. In in the first place, I think I just that I the very first play I wrote was Shopping and Fucking. And I just wrote that because I'd been to see a lot of plays for a few years and I thought there were some good plays, but I hadn't seen any one play that exactly nailed how it felt to be alive, to be me, in that year, 1996. And I just thought, it was kind of just a feeling. I just thought, there's a feeling of the way it is to be now. There's hardly any autobiographical elements, hardly anything at all in Shopping and Fucking that I've literally experienced. But it was more just a sense of the world feels like this to me. I was about 29 at the time. The world feels like this, and I'm just not seeing a play that quite feels right. So I was looking to write a play, but it was really just for myself. And then I thought, I'll put this play on myself and um, with, with some friends. And there's a lot of pub theatres in London, rooms above pubs. There's probably about 30 spaces like that or something. And so for, again, like everything else, they've become much more expensive to put those plays on. But... In, in the mid-90s, you could put a play on like that for, say, $5,000 or something. You could raise the money and put it on. Um, but
But then before I did it, I thought, I'll just send it to a couple of people just in case somebody else. But really, I didn't have any hopes of it. I just thought it would just be me. And a, but then it did get picked up by established director and established theatres. But then it started to be translated and produced in other, in other countries. And then, you know, you see this strange thing that this, that this play that you wrote in the first place, really just for yourself, just to say, how does it feel to be me now in this moment? And then I'll share it with three or four friends and then we might get an audience of 50 people to see it. Then suddenly there's, you know, 30 productions and people in all sorts of different countries and cultures are, are producing the play. And, but, but that's really exciting. They find within the play something that they connect with, something of themselves, and, and they bring that into the play. And I think that's, you know, arguably that's what happens with any work of fiction, that a reader picks up a novel and brings themselves to it. But it's just right there in front of your eyes as a, as, as a playwright. You go there and an actor totally owns that character. And you've often written the play two or three years before, and they're referring to lines in the play and things the character does, and you're thinking, oh, I really can't remember now. But, th you know, that, that character's totally become that actor's, and they know that play and that character more than you do by then. And you've kind of moved on as a person and you couldn't have written that play now. Um, but, but now it's theirs. And that's, that's, that's really great. And sometimes you do go and you just see terrible, terrible productions. <laughs> uh, but that's fine, you know, that's kind of fine in a way. I always think a terrible production is probably gonna actually lead to more productions because if somebody does the definitive production, then other directors come to see it and say, oh, I've seen the definitive production. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that play. Whereas if somebody comes to see a lousy production, they say, they got it all wrong. I'm going to do my own production. So I think I was, if I have to sit through a really terrible production, I think I, I bet this is going to generate like 10 more productions. <laughs> and if I see a definitive production, of course, it's fantastic. You think, wow, they just nailed it completely. But that probably means that nobody in this country that it's playing in is going to dare put on this play for five or 10 years because this production was so great. So, you know, but it, it, it's, it's exciting to think that, and still, you know, when you start a play, you can really only write for yourself. It's just you in your, your room, imagining something that you want to see and that it means something to you. So it's still, the pr and the process begins all over again. And then two years later, you go to some completely other country and other culture, and they've made the play for themselves. And that's, that's it. it I find that endlessly fascinating. It's one of the things that keeps me going, really, is that something that can be so personal can end up being not quite universal, but can be, you know, but can transcend into other people's experiences and cultures. It's an amazing thing, yes. Um, we've had a lot of authors this semester talk about the difference between writing a novel versus writing a short story. And I've done neither, so. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I found with the 20 minute thing, um, it made me, it was a good discipline because, it, because I think for each one I had to choose, be, be quite clear about the central image or the central moment that I was choosing for each play, which sounds quite similar to the thing that people describe with short stories, that, it, that in some way I was aware. But actually it was interesting. I think 20 minutes, certainly in the way that I was writing, was just a little bit, a little bit longer, um, and so I found the first 15 minutes of each one quite comfortable to write in a way. It was kind of things I already f felt and thought. And then you get to the 15-minute mark, and then there'd be five more minutes more to go, and I found I had to push beyond stuff that I knew I was going to write about when I started writing the play. So I think if they'd been 15 minutes, they kind of would have operated within my comfort zone in a way, but 20 minutes just demands a little bit more that you had to kind of push. And quite often the last five minutes of the play would take me to a place that I hadn't anticipated the play would go and would have an extra surprise to me as I was, as I was writing it. Um, so it, it's, it's a good discipline, but I'm, I'm aware now that I wrote that and, um, and I wrote a lot of them. So I think what I really need to do now, I mean, I have written a couple of things subsequently, but what I haven't done is written a big full-length play and that's something that I, I want to do in the next year or so because I think there's a danger that you do lose that that muscle so um, yeah that's that's my kind of challenge to myself is 
okay, write um, a three-hour play and sustain, you know, one theme and one, not one idea, but you know what I mean, a central thread for for a big a big play. I think would be a good thing to do. And I think, you know, I think quite a lot of artists of different kinds do work like that. Quite often we think they're always going to be led by subject matter or by idea, but I think quite often it's it, it's formal. It's like, okay, I've done a two-hander play, now I want to write a 20, a play for 20 actors. Okay, now I've done a short play, I want to do a long play. I think quite often, you know, it's also, you're, you're led by form as well. They, it comes together with ideas and <coughs> subjects. But I think quite often what motivates you is just keep on presenting yourself with formal challenges as well. So I'm a little bit aware, yeah, that I need to rework that... Um, slightly long distance kind of muscle and write a long play. Yes. Um, He's good at questions. <laughs> um, I was just wondering uh, if you could talk more about um, like what you were thinking about when you were writing um, Shoot, like Treasure and Repeat, because I noticed that uh, you uh, brought up like democracy and freedom a lot, but in many of the plays, there was actually very little freedom Like they were, they, they were kind of like limited to their actions because they only had God and stuff like that. Yes, I was quite interested in those people in Armageddon because um, they're both both the characters in Armageddon are very. Um, very Christian people, and you know they they really believe in the presence of God in their lives, and that every action that they're doing is 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 is, is being witnessed by somebody. Um, and I found that quite fascinating, and and in a way, I, you know, I, I I could really see the appeal of that. That I guess I have a general sense in my life that nobody much is watching, um, but the sense that all day long everything you were doing was being watched, is you know, I could see that the appeal of that. So I I kind of um, felt quite drawn to that. It felt like quite a nice thing to write about this intensely Christian community where every, where there are a set of values and a, and literally a sense that somebody is watching everything. That, that you're doing. But I think the words freedom and democracy um, resonate, keep on coming up and up time and time and time again in the plays. Um, and we talked about this in the, in, in the last class that I spoke at. But I, I think just because I was aware that that the politicians were overusing them, that every interview they just, freedom and democracy, freedom and democracy. And I thought, you're cheapening these words, that they're very, very important words. And you know, alongside food and love and sex and family and things that humans need, th they, they are very, very important things, but um, we shouldn't just keep on repeating them as a kind of mantra. We need to, I, I started to feel we needed to be quite sparing about how often we used those words. And, and because I felt that we were using them a lot, sometimes just purely as a smokescreen, okay, we're gonna take away some of your civil liberties in the name of homeland security and we're going to keep on saying freedom and democracy as we remove some of your freedom and democracy that sometimes it was a simple contradiction um, but also a sense that you know freedom and democracy each have a different history within different cultures and how they reach freedom and how they reach democracy has been very different for every every culture and there was a danger that we were imposing a just a very simple blanket definition of one type of freedom and democracy onto the whole world. Um, so I wanted us, yeah, I wanted the audience to start to almost get irritated by it. just stop saying freedom and democracy. Do, do everything you do, stop saying freedom and democracy. What, is, what are you actually talking about? What does it actually mean? What, why is it important? Um, and uh, I think that intention was there, and I noticed it particularly with the going to see the German production because they've, they've done 11 of the plays in an evening um, and um, you know I don't speak very much German so words really leap out at you and the number of times they say Freiheit und Demokratie again and again and again and again because it's one of the few words I could, uh, I could understand but you know it did make me really aware that every minute one of the characters is saying Freiheit und Demokratie and it does become like this kind of really annoying thing um, so I, you know, so I thought, oh, that's good because that was kind of my initial impulse. And then when you hear it in this completely other language, the, 
these words just keep on coming out at you until you want to sit the characters down and go, just think about freedom and democracy. What are they really? What do you really want? Just stop using them as almost like a mantra or a... There's almost becomes like people saying like or you know or whatever. It just becomes a kind of mannerism. And they're so important that they shouldn't become a mannerism. Great, thank you.